Guys, today we're going to be continuing our series in Galatians. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. But as you turn there, uh, I actually want to read to you guys another scripture. I want to read to you guys from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes this to his spiritual son, Timothy. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, even having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. How many of you hear those words and you look at the world around you and you say, that is the world we live in? Yeah, that is the world we live in. I've heard this phrase many times, and it will continue to be repeated. Kids these days. It wasn't like this when I was a kid. It wasn't like this when my parents were a kid. And why is that? Paul goes on in 2 Timothy 3. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while the evil people, the imposters, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The word of God tells us that until Jesus comes back, things will get worse, right? The world that we live in, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, is a present evil age. It is an era of wickedness. But here's the part from this passage that I want to read to you guys before we jump in. Keep all that in mind. Things are bad. Things are getting worse. Those who want to follow Jesus will be persecuted, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, you guys, the people of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. It's exactly for that reason that we gather here every week and sit here to listen to the word of God because that is the very thing in this present evil age that we need to be able to stand firm in our faith, right? Scripture is profitable for your training and equipping in righteousness. But so often uh, Christians look at the world around them. I am guilty of this and you see somebody who lives a wicked lifestyle, and you think that person would never come to Jesus. How many of you guys have thought that before? I confess my own lack of faith. I look at people sometimes, and I say to myself, I don't know how that person could ever come to Jesus. And that is a sinful, prideful attitude, because just like the verse says, Scripture is profitable for our training in righteousness, Scripture is profitable for every single person in the world who hates God. It is profitable to even bring them to training in righteousness and faith in Jesus, right? And so that's why we're coming to the book of Galatians. And we're going to sit under the, the teaching of Paul in this letter for the, the next, like, it's going to take us months to get through it. Um, so don't let that discourage you. We're going we're gonna to dive deep into Galatians for the very purpose of getting to this training and equipping in righteousness because the message of Galatians is a message of freedom. Paul writes in Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And it's that very profitable scripture, that gospel of freedom that this evil world needs we don't stand in a place of prideful authority over the world. We stand in a place of humble forgiveness 
where we are eager to share the freedom of Scripture with everyone around us. And so that's why we're jumping into Galatians. There is a milieu of a million different versions of truth, and they're all masquerading behind the banner of freedom, right? That is the thing in our culture. Like, I have the right to do what I see fit. I have the freedom to choose whatever I want to do. And you have a million different versions of truth claiming to bring freedom, yet there is only one real path to true freedom. And Jesus lays it out for us in the book of Galatians through the Apostle Paul. So I want you guys to, like, as we go through Galatians, know the freedom of the gospel. Know the power of the gospel, not only for your own soul's sake, but for everyone that you encounter outside of this building. Does that make sense? You guys still with me? All right, let's jump into Galatians chapter 1. You guys got your Bibles open? Yeah? Okay. My hope today, as we look at Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, is that you would walk out of here assured in the confidence of the gospel that we've received from Scripture. I want you guys to have a fresh joy in the gospel. And some of you might not even know this, but one of our distinctives as a church is that we are gospel-centered. And so this is one of the things that undergirds everything we do. We want the gospel and its freedom and power to always be before us. And so Paul, as we get into Galatians chapter 1 today, starting in verse 11, um, Paul has set out to, as Dan talked about last week, he is rebuking the church in Galatia, right? He's coming down hard to correct where they have gone off track. And specifically, what he's setting out to do in Galatians is to defend the content of the gospel that he has preached and is still preaching as he writes this. But I want to give you a little bit of the context because Paul was writing into this really, really tense, volatile situation. The church in Galatia was in the middle of this hot debate as to whether or not the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians needed to follow the Torah as Moses had given it um, from the Lord. And so there was a lot of debate over this, and specifically when it comes to the thing of male circumcision, which was like going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the identifying mark of the people of God. And so there's like this really intense ethnic religious debate surrounding these things that Paul's writing into. And so I actually, uh, I told you to go to Galatians, but actually turn your Bible to Acts. I just want to share the context of the situation that's going on as Paul writes this. Go to Acts chapter 13, or you can just listen to me read it, but I'd love for you to read along with me quietly. So Acts chapter 13 Paul and Barnabas arrive in the region of Galatia. And what happens when they get there um, is they go into a Jewish synagogue and they're listening to the teacher. And then the teacher says, do you guys have a word of encouragement that you want to share? And so they stand up and they begin to preach the gospel in this Jewish synagogue. And so Acts chapter 13 Verse 43 says, after the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, there were many Jews and many devout converts to Judaism who followed Paul and Barnabas. And as they spoke with them, they urged them, uh, Paul and Barnabas did, to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This was the city of Antioch in Pisidia. Almost the whole city gathered because they were eager to hear this. But when the Jews, specifically the leaders of the Jewish um, synagogue, when they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. But Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to the Jewish people, but since you thrust it aside... And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. 
And the Gentiles heard this, and they began rejoicing, and they began glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But, verse 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And so Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet, and they went on to the next Galatian city of Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. So now they come to the next city in Galatia, Iconium. And what do they do? Uh, chapter 14, they enter together into the Jewish synagogue. And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it, and they fled to another Galatian city of Lystra, and then Derby, and the cities of Lyconia, and the surrounding country. And what did they do there? They continued to preach the gospel. That's a tense situation, right? Then in, in verse 19 of chapter 14, there were some Jews who came from Antioch and Iconium, those cities that they had just been cast out of. Those Jewish leaders are following after, looking for them. And they came, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But as we know, he wasn't. The disciples gathered around him. He rose up and entered the city and continued to preach the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not sound like an enjoyable vacation, right? Just like intense persecution. But Paul and Barnabas finally returned back home to Syria, and they're recounting all the things that the Lord has done. And then what happens in Acts chapter 15, there are some men from Judea who come down to their city and start teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. That is the context of where Paul is now writing back to the Galatians. And he's saying, you, there is no other gospel. That's what we talked about last week, right? There is only one gospel. And so in this next section, what he does is he's setting the table to lay out, again, the content of his gospel message that he preached in all those cities and was persecuted for. Now let's look at verse 11 in Galatians chapter 1. Finally at our text for the day. The fact is that ever since the beginning of time, since the beginning of the, the biblical storyline, God's enemy Satan has sought to undermine the reliability of God's word, specifically by distorting the content of, the, of its message. But even beneath that, Satan's number one tactic from the beginning has been to discredit the source of that message. So he's distorting the content and he's discrediting the source. And so in our text for today, before Paul gets to the content of his gospel, he's gonna defend the source of his gospel. Where did this gospel come from that he's teaching? And so there's two things in particular that I wanna point out to you guys from the text. And the first one is this. The gospel that Paul preached and the gospel that we have is not an academic theory. Let's read verse 11 together. Actually, I didn't even read the text yet, guys. Um, 
but I'm just going to go right into it. Let's start in verse 11. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, in other words, this is important, I want you to know this, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not an academic theory. Now, theory is an incredibly powerful tool of reasoning that God has wired into us as intellectual humans. We have wonderful minds. And theory has been the thing that propels forward all of our technological advancements. How many of you uh, drove here in a car this morning? How many of you guys have a phone? And how many of you guys use electricity? Like all of those things have come into existence by the use of theory, right? The scientific method and the way that we develop technology is driven by a theory, which is a prediction of future behaviors based upon things that we've observed. That's the simplest definition. It's an educated guess as to what will happen based on what we've observed. And that is incredible. Like God has given us that as a gift to fulfill our commission from Genesis of subduing the earth and like making the most out of the earth that he's given us, right? But there's a limitation when it comes to theory because theories are driven from and created in the human mind. And humans are finite creatures, right? None of us know everything. And so when we come up with a theory, it could be proven wrong at any moment, right? As we, as we test and observe and test and observe, theories need to be refined and corrected. And so even coming from the scientific field, the experts would say, yeah, like a theory is a theory. It hasn't been finally proven, though we can rely on them, right? But any theory could be proven wrong at any time. And so while they are so powerful and such a gift from God, they are limited and here's where we get in trouble as a human society is that when we remove the authority of an objective person outside of ourselves, namely God, our only other option for explaining the deep questions of life, like why are we here and where did we come from, without an objective authority outside of us, human theory is the only other option, or animals, but human theory then becomes, for a society who has rejected God's authority, it's actually then required. Like, you have no other options to explain these things but to theorize as to why things are the way they are. And so as a human, um, as just like people in the world, th this is the whole world, we stretch theories beyond their capabilities. And we begin to force theories to explain realities that we were never meant to fully understand yet. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are secret things that belong to the Lord. We are to understand the things that he has revealed to us, but there are other things that only God knows for now. Yet we take theories because we don't want to accept God's authority and we come up with our own version of like why things are the way they are and we stretch them and force them. And so like that is what is driving the academics in our world today is it's science and theory, right? And the academia of our world does not see God as the rightful external authority over us. And so what happens is we are educating generations and generations of people based on theories that we actually aren't certain are the real truth. Yet we declare that they are the final truth and the final authority. And this just, man, it leads to so many situations of brokenness, does it not? You guys see that in the world around you? And so in Paul's day, academia was like in the beginning stages of where it is now, right? He was a few hundred years after, like, the Greek philosophers. That was his world. They were developing all of these things. And the academics of that day and age were intense about training their disciples in their way of thinking. 
But here Paul says in verse 11, this gospel message that I'm declaring to you, it's not a result of those academic thinkers. It's not a result of philosophers. It's not a theory of what somebody thought to be the explanation of reality. The gospel that I'm proclaiming to you is actually a revelation from God and not a man. It is not according to a man, is what the, the verse actually says. This gospel message is not someone's idea or theory. Now, not only is it not an academic theory, the gospel is not a cultural bias. And this is another criticism of Christianity today. You will often hear people say, like, all religions claim to be a revelation from God, but they're just cultural expressions of your own version of getting to the same God. Have you guys heard something along those lines? Critics will say that Christianity is just a byproduct of your environment. If you would have grown up in another atmosphere, your religion would be a different religion, which to some extent is true, right? Yet, Paul is saying the gospel was not derived from any culture. It is not the product of any human environment. Look at verse 16 in the end of the verse. Paul says that, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I actually went away into Arabia and returned again later to, to Damascus. And then it was after three years that I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who was Peter, and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went back to Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. You're like, what in the world is Paul talking about? This seems kind of random. Like, I went to go visit Peter for two weeks, and then I went here, and then I went there. Well, what Paul is, is writing to is this critical idea, this criticism that the gospel that he is teaching is just a byproduct of hanging out with these Jerusalem guys, namely Peter, James, and John, those liberals who were like teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, Paul must have just been hanging out with them, and that's where he came up with this. And Paul's like making the case, no, I received the gospel not from a man, and not even from the apostles, like not even the closest guys who follow Jesus. I didn't even go meet them until years later. There's no way that I would have been preaching something that they taught me when I didn't even meet them, and the churches in that area didn't even know who I was, or at least they didn't know me personally, is what the text is, is getting at. And so Paul is making the case, like, I would testify before the Lord that I'm telling the truth, that my gospel message did not come from any teacher or theory or school. It did not come, even in verse 14, it didn't come from my experience being raised up in Judaism. He says, I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers, but his gospel didn't come from them, and his gospel didn't come from the church leaders in Jerusalem. And he is testifying to the Galatians, like, I need you to know this. This gospel did not come from anyone else. This is so important for us today because you guys have heard these criticisms, have you not? Like, your religion is just your idea or it's just your version of the same thing I believe. Your religion is just the result of where you grew up. Your religion is just a theory. Like, I believe in a theory, and you believe in a theory, and no one knows what's actually true. Guys, this is the culture we live in. And Paul, one of the, the, found, the founders of the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is saying to the Galatians and to us, this gospel did not come from humans. It didn't come from a culture. And man, even when you look back in the history of Christianity since Paul's time, and this is a very real criticism, this is a painful mark in the church's history, is that many times Christianity has been used as a weapon 
Christianity has been used to colonize people and to force culture upon them, has it not? Christianity has been used to take lives in the name of Jesus to force people to follow him, has it not? This is a painful reality in the history of the church and to the point now where it is a common thought that Christianity is just the white man's religion. Have you guys heard that? Eric Mason has a really good talk on this. And this is a real criticism in our entire globe, not even just in our culture here, but in the globe. Like Christianity is just, it's just the white Anglo-Saxon religion, and I have my own religion. Guys, these criticisms must be met with the same truth that Paul wrote to the Galatians. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a cultural bias. It's not just the byproduct of where we grew up. It's not a school of thought. It is a revelation from God himself. Now, if Paul had taken the gospel to be just like a very well put together academic theory, Paul would have never become a Christian. If Paul thought of Christianity as just like, well, that's actually a culture that I am attracted to, so I'm going to leave my traditions, and I'm just going to join these traditions because I think they're better. If Paul had been asked to take a survey of his religious affiliation, not only would he have skipped over the checkbox for Christianity, he probably would have torn that part of the paper off and shredded it and threw it on the ground because Paul was a man who hated Christianity. Paul was a man who hated the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hated the church. He hated the followers of Jesus. He hated all of it. And as I mentioned <clears throat> in the beginning, that text from 2 Timothy, there are many in the world in that same boat who hate Christianity. They hate the message. They hate the founder that Hebrew guy, Yeshua, who claimed to be God, that's how Paul would have viewed him, this imposter, this blasphemer, and all those people who just blindly follow him are fools. The gospel certainly was not Paul's idea. <clears throat> Look with me at verse 13. Paul says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Does that sound like a guy who would have switched to Christianity just because it was an attractive theory or a, a cultural bias? Absolutely not nor will anyone else in the world who rejects God and hates Christianity do that either. It is not something like a political party where you just check a box. You can't just go from here to there when your heart is filled with such animosity towards the message and the source of this gospel. So what in the world happened? Like, how did Paul go from this to that. Think back to that passage. I, I just want to read again 2 Timothy 3 to get those descriptions in your mind. There will be those who are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, and conceited, who love pleasure, not God. Some of you have that story, do you not? Matter of fact, all of us have that story. Those descriptions were all of us, maybe even still are some of us, and it is impossible for us to think that we can accept Christianity as just a theory or just a cultural thing. That does not save people who hate God. 
that will never be effective to bring you out of that animosity. That is never going to be enough to go from loving yourself and worshiping yourself to submitting your life to God. Man, this is often the breaking point for um, some of the younger generations and their, their parents or grandparents. Like, they get to a point of saying, I don't agree with my parents' belief system, and so I'm going to reject it. Like, even though I've grown up going to church with grandma or somebody in my family, there becomes this breaking point where cultural, environmental religion is not enough. And you see the divisions happen in families. And there comes a time where if you view Christianity as a theory that you were taught in school, when the world comes at you with harsh criticism and persecution, and they push back against your belief system, and you just think of it as a theory, you're going to abandon it, are you not? You cannot stand up to the pressures of the world if that's your view of this gospel. And so again, I ask, what happened to Paul? What happened to some of us who have gone from haters of God to lovers of God? Look at verse 15. This is so beautiful and so powerful. Paul hated the church. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Oh, the gospel that Paul has been preaching is a revelation of Jesus that is radically transforming. Radically transforming. Think about Paul before he was named Paul. His name was Saul, right? And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Again, zealous for the traditions of his fathers. He was a religious man who followed the law as precisely as he could. And Paul, or Saul as he was named, was a man who had heard the gospel many times. Do you remember Acts chapter 7, where the deacon Stephen stands up and he begins to preach this long sermon, just proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul was standing there listening to this gospel proclamation. In fact, Paul was persecuting the church because of the fact that he knew the gospel message. Does that make sense? He was very well aware that these liberal Jews were following this blasphemer and saying that he was God. Paul was aware of that. He knew the content of the message. He had heard that Jesus had died and been raised again for our sins. He heard that, yet he rejected its central claim. Paul rejected the belief that Jesus truly was the Son of God. He rejected the fact that Jesus had come to live a sinless life to save Paul from his own sins. He rejected the central claim that Jesus had been crucified and actually raised again to save us. So even though he heard the gospel, he knew all of its content, he still hated the church. He still persecuted the church. Think about James chapter 2. I know Larry's been studying the book of James, so you'll know this off the top of your head. Even the demons know the gospel, and they actually fear God because they know God better than we do. And so this is so important for us. The content of the gospel as merely a formula of just religious propositions is not enough to save us from our hatred of God. Amen? Do you guys believe, do you agree with me on that one? Just knowing a series of propositions is not enough to bring us out of our hatred of God and out of our sin. Look with me at Acts chapter 9. We've got to go back to the conversion of Saul. 
Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, any men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as Paul went on his way, he's approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shines around him, and Saul falls to the ground when he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The power of the gospel that is so radically transformative is what happened in that moment where Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior, comes to Paul and reveals his true identity. Paul had heard the claims and rejected them, and here comes Jesus shining in all of his resurrected glory, saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul is undone by the glory of Jesus. Paul is actually physically blinded by the beauty and majesty of Jesus. This is powerful, is it not? Man, the power of the gospel is the revelation of Jesus to Paul. It's not a theory. It's not a bias or a cultural idea. It is the revelation of Jesus himself before Paul's very eyes, affirming his identity. Like Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. Jesus knows that Paul is persecuting him. And Jesus is calling him to repent and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. There is a spiritual reality that has to take place in order for the gospel to truly save you. It is not just hearing propositions and somewhat agreeing with them. The spiritual reality going back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, is that God himself actually has to open up your heart to be able to understand who Jesus is. And just to put this out the sidebar, um, when we talk about Reformed theology, this is one of the primary things that we mean, is that we are so spiritually dead and blind in our hatred of God that we will never and can never just change teams we actually need God himself to awaken our hearts to this truth of who Jesus is. And that's why Paul says, when the Lord, when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son. It's that moment of identity where the veil is lifted and Paul's heart sees Jesus for who he truly is and he falls down blind and humbled before the Lord. And at that point, he believes, does he not? At that point, Paul says, I'll do whatever you say. I will go to the Gentiles, who Paul would have despised as a religious man in Judaism. He says, I will go to them and proclaim the gospel that you've just given to me, even to the point of death. How powerful is that, that transformation that Paul would even put himself in a situation of being stoned and beaten for this gospel that he hated for so long. That is a radical transformation. And Paul writes to the Galatians, this is the gospel that I've been proclaiming to you. It's come from Jesus himself, and this is the only gospel. This is, as he writes to the Romans, the power of God for salvation. It's not just religious statements or theories. It is the very word of God as he has revealed himself throughout history, through scripture, and he attends that word of God by his spirit, opens up our hearts to who he is, to the point where we say, like, I believe. I give my life to this Jesus. That is the gospel that we have. There must be 
the word of God proclaimed, the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, yet it has to be attended by God's miraculous working in our heart. Listen to how beautiful that is again. When God who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. God is pleased to pursue sinners. All those categories I listed from 2 Timothy, God is pleased to pursue them. And God is pleased to show his grace to those who have hated him. How many of you had a time in your life where you hated Christianity? Like you did not want to submit to it. I will say even growing up in a Christian family and in the church, there was a lot of times where I rebelled against it. I did not want to obey Jesus. I did not want to follow him. I was living under a cultural bias of what my parents believed. It wasn't until God was pleased to reveal his true identity within my heart where I said, oh my goodness, I must repent of my unbelief. God is pleased by those moments. And here's another powerful point from that verse, that God knew you before you were born. Not only did he know you, God actually formed you, as the psalmist writes. He knit you together, and he actually created you for a very purpose, and that purpose would be, we're not all the Apostle Paul, yet our purpose for every single one of us is to live a life that represents God in this world in various ways. And, and so God is pleased to not only knit us together, to give us a calling, to give us a purpose, to give us physical life, and then to arrange all the circumstances throughout our life where he's coming after us in goodness and grace. He's sending people our way to teach us about him. He's sending people our way to love us, even as we talked earlier, Susie, about coworkers and neighbors God puts us in these situations that we might receive the gospel and then he's pleased in those moments to, res to reveal himself to us that we might go and take him to others. And look at the end of the section, all the way down in verse 23. Paul, this persecutor of the church, this hater of Christianity, who begins proclaiming the gospel, he says in verse 23, those Christians in Judea, they only heard of it saying, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And then verse 24, they glorified God because of me. God is glorified when his enemies become his friends and his servants. He is glorified in that, and his name is exalted. He is enthroned in our praises when we see enemies of God being transformed by his radical grace and love. And so I want to end by just asking you, like, remember your story? Like, what are the circumstances that the Lord brought to bear in your own life that you would be brought to this point of decision before the Lord where you realize how sinful you are and how perfect he is and you realize that the only way for you to be saved from your life of sin is to cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus do you guys remember your story all too well the power of the gospel for us today is that it stirs us in fresh faith to go seek the lost who don't yet know him, right? The power of the gospel today for us should stir us up again in joy and thanksgiving. And when you consider the miraculous like transformation that had to take place for you to come to Christ— so often we forsake that memory of miraculous transformation when it comes to everyday situations. 
we get into these struggles and these challenging things and these temptations, and it's like we forget how miraculous and transformative the gospel is in our lives. So again, the power of the gospel for us today is that we're filled with faith for whatever struggles we're in right now, like Jesus has the power to save not only from our sins, but also from the challenges and the difficulties that we walk through. Like he didn't just abandon us when we said, I follow you. He's with us, right? My hope is that your hearts are just filled afresh with this joy of the gospel, this confidence in the gospel. Because as we leave here, we're going to encounter again people who hate Christianity. We're going to encounter people who don't know its freedom. We're going to encounter people who push back against you. And, and as 2 Timothy says, says, they will persecute you if you're seeking boldly to live a godly life. They're going to push back. And so we must stand firm in confidence and assurance in this gospel, knowing that Jesus himself came to Paul. And I want to add this. If you think about the other major religions around the world, there's many other stories of a revelation from God, right? Think about Islam and Buddhism. Think about Mormonism. There are many claims to have a revelation from God. But each one of those religions that is based upon a revelation from God has come to an individual, has not been attested by anybody else, it has not been affirmed by any other existing community, and you have these new religions being formed on claims of revelations from God. But what happened with Paul, even though he's claiming to have a revelation of God, there's others standing around him when this happens in Acts chapter 9. Everyone around him saw this happen. There's eyewitnesses. This is a historical account of something that happened, and Paul is saying, there were others with me who saw this. I was blind, and I came to Ananias, who also testified to the fact that I was blind, and the Lord then healed my sight. These things are attested to by eyewitnesses. They're recorded in Scripture. They are copied with thousands and thousands of accurate manuscripts. So we have a recorded historical data of these things really happening in history. And not only that, but after, as we'll see next week, after Paul finally does go to Jerusalem, he wants to meet the Apostle Peter. He says, I went up to Jerusalem to basically get to know Peter. Man, can you imagine spending two weeks with the Apostle Peter just to get to know him and to hear of all of his experiences with Jesus. What an incredible two weeks that must have been. But my point is that even after years of Paul proclaiming this gospel, he goes to the leaders in Jerusalem and they say, this is the same gospel. We affirm that you have received the same gospel that we have we walked with Jesus, and this is the exact same message. And not only that, but it is testified to by all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Like, there is thousands of years of religious history that this gospel is affirmed by. That is something that we can stand on with confidence. This is not just one man's idea. This is not some cultish offshoot of another religion the gospel that Paul received far surpasses any theory any concept any idea that man could create and and that is the beautiful thing about scripture and man I just again encourage you like put in the work and the time to get to know the Bible because the more you study it the more you learn about just how this gospel is attested to over centuries and millennia. And so I want you guys to be able to go into a conversation with an unbeliever who hates Christianity and to be able to say, like, like the guy in um, John chapter 9, I don't know this man or his parents. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. I want you guys to be able to step into those conversations and say, I know you have critique and reservations. I know the church has messed up 
very badly, but I know that I was lost and now I'm found. I know what my former life looked like and I know what my life looks like now. The gospel is radically transforming because it is the work of God in our hearts to awaken us to who Jesus is. Now we're going to end with taking communion. Why don't you guys bow your heads? Before we partake in communion together, I just want to pray. Maybe you sit here and you think about your life and you would say, I've never actually had that spiritual heart level encounter with God where I've realized how sinful I am and how he is my holy savior. And I've never actually repented from my unbelief. I want to encourage you, just as Paul was blinded by the glory of Jesus, in that moment, he gave up everything. He gave up his entire former life. As he writes in Philippians, I counted it all as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. I want to encourage you, if that's you, like, leave the former life behind. Paul went to Damascus where he was healed of his blindness. He repented of his sins and he was baptized. I want to encourage you, if you've never had your heart transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, do not wait another day. Lay your life down before him today and know the freedom that he gives. Now, if you already have done that, you know Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus, I want to encourage you to gaze upon that saving sacrifice again with humble thanksgiving. Let your heart just receive his grace again. It's a free gift can't earn it and even as Christians sometimes we just slip into a mindset of like doing things because we think we're obligated to serve Jesus and earn his favor get out of that let your heart right now receive his grace again afresh when God was pleased to reveal his son to you he did and he's so gracious and so kind that when he reveals his identity to us, we can't help but give our lives to him. Just let that wash over your heart this morning. Lord, I pray for my family here in this room. I pray for my family who's, who's traveling who's at home, who's sick, all the members and, and, and the people, Lord, that you have brought to this church family. Lord, I lift them up before you today, and I ask that your spirit would assure them of the, the beauty, the truth, the power, the purity of this gospel that Paul has preached even to the point of his own death. And Lord, I thank you for the testimony of Paul who was transformed by your grace. I thank you that he was willing to go city after city, town after town, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, by whom we have forgiveness of sins. Lord, I thank you for using him as your servant. Thank you for calling him that that we might gather thousands of years later to read these accounts and to hear 
the miraculous power of that message that you attend with your spirit. Lord, I'm so thankful for that. And I ask for my brothers and sisters that, that their hearts would be full again today, just knowing the gospel again, filled with joy, hearts stirred, full of faith. Like, I know I can step out into the world today with Jesus by my side. I'm standing upon that solid rock. And I want to bring that grace and love to everybody I encounter. Lord, would you fill us up with a love for the lost, knowing that such were we. Lord, fill us up with a compassion for those who hate Christianity. Lord, would you fill us with a desire to go after them in love the way you did. Lord, that's not something that we can do in the flesh, and we need your spirit to go with us, to empower us, to fill us with boldness, to fill us with truth and wisdom. Lord, we want to be your faithful witnesses just like Paul was. We want the power of this gospel even to affect our every facet of our life, even when it comes down to like relational tension, arguments with spouses, difficulties with children, um, physical ailments. Lord, all of these facets of our lives are impacted by the gospel of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that more deeply. We need your wisdom and your spiritual understanding again this morning. Enlighten our hearts and minds to this truth, Lord. I'm going to ask you guys to go to the tables in the back and grab the elements for communion and return to your seats. Take a few more moments to, to consider the beauty of this gospel. Ask the Lord to fill you afresh with joy and confidence in it. Spend time thanking him and praising him for it. He was pleased to reveal his son to you. He is pleased to reveal his son to his enemies in the world. And he is pleased to use you as his servant to take that gospel to them. So give him thanks for that. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 
I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The same gospel. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let's use this final song as our prayer of thanksgiving and consecration to our Lord Jesus in response to this gospel.
I just want to declare the benediction from Numbers chapter 6 over you guys. Again, if, you've, if, you've, if this has impacted your heart and you need to, to discuss this with me, like please come talk to me uh, before you leave today. Um, my heart is just to see hearts transformed. I remember my own story too well. And the freedom that comes when you surrender your life to Jesus Oh, man, it is unmatchable. And so that's what we want to see. Now, may the Lord bless you today. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his glorious, majestic, holy, eternal, shining face to shine upon you. That you might have peace and rest. That you may know him. In Jesus' name, grace and peace to you guys. You are dismissed. Amen.